0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
1: We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will
2: help us to get past this pandemic once and for all.
3: We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure.
1: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing.
3: Good
2: afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke.
1: Now, in a moment, our special episode today, what went right in the vaccine effort here in the UK? But first, let's look at what else has been happening in the world of politics. Well, the UK economy grew at double the pace expected in the fourth quarter, showing signs of resilience to the virus restrictions at the end of a year that delivered the worst recession since 1709. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, says the UK economy is showing signs of resilience.
2: Mm, So that, uh, when it comes to the impact of the pandemic. On Brexit, though, the UK and the EU remain in a standoff over how to implement the Brexit deal when it comes to Northern Ireland. So three hours of face-to-face talks between the Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove and his EU counterpart, Maros Sefcovic failed to resolve key disagreements over trade, the two sides there have promised to intensify their efforts now to find, quote, workable solutions on the ground.
1: But now let's go to our special today. And the focus, as I said before, is what went right, because that really is what everyone is saying about the vaccine programme. How did the UK, which was heavily criticised for the exceptionally high number of deaths from COVID-19, and for the missteps in regulation and then relaxation... How did that become world-leading in getting and giving out the vaccines? Well, in the moment, we'll look at how the vaccines were developed in record time and procured efficiently. But first, the actual process of getting needles in millions of arms. Mm,
2: one of the most significant parts of this is the sheer pace with which the vaccines have been rolled out. The number of jabs that have been given. Volunteers, of course, have played a large role in this. And we heard from one today, the St John Ambulance Chief Volunteer and cable.
3: We are highly trained. We've had our training uh, supported, verified by the NHS and Public Health England. We work to their standards and indeed we're assessed and we are supervised whilst we're out there vaccinating. So it is all carefully managed and uh, people get exactly the same quality of service as if you were being vaccinated by a nurse as by a volunteer who's been trained.
1: Well that's quite reassuring I guess. Uh, that was Anne Cable there. Well let's hear more about how the process has worked out. So well I'm very pleased to say joining us now is Becky Bed, Senior Fellow in Health Policy at the research group the King's Fund, researchers into health policy. Uh, Becky thanks for being with us. Uh, first of all just just tell us what was it that made the vaccination process so smooth here relatively speaking and I guess so far? Oh thanks
4: for having me here. Um, uh, in a short word we have an excellent primary care system in this country and it's no surprise to me that actually the two countries in the world doing best on vaccine rollout it seems are israel and the uk which are two countries with some of the strongest primary care systems we have a system where virtually everybody in the uk is registered with a local general practice and they know what they're doing when it comes to vaccine programs they roll out a huge flu vaccine program every single year they know their communities we've seen and you've heard this uh, uh, from the volunteers there, an, an amazing partnership with their local community groups, with local government who've helped them find venues and cleared roads of snow and done lots of other things. GPs know their communities and they're the right place, they're the right people to do this. And they've come together, actually, to really uh, work, work at a slightly bigger scale than just a single general practice to really get the best out of these. But it's no surprise to me that GPs can do this. Mm,
2: Yeah, interesting. Is primary care also the best way of sort of getting past people's fears and kind of worries about the vaccine?
4: Absolutely. And there's a huge focus on that at the moment. And that focus will need to continue. There's a lot of people who are hesitant. For lots of different reasons, we've got particular faith groups who are worried about and and, and people from different communities worried about the content of the vaccine, who have had poor experiences with their healthcare systems in the past and really need reassurance. And I'm seeing some really brilliant examples of that. Um, uh, One GP I was talking to recently is calling her patients who are hesitant, really taking the time to speak through with them about their fears and their concerns, and that's really helping We've seen um, in, in North Kensington, for example, a great partnership between a Muslim doctor and a Jewish doctor who've created a vaccine taxi that goes around um, <laughs> vaccinating and provides mobile vaccination to communities. Another group in Surrey working with a Hindu charity in their local bus company to develop a mobile unit that can go out to where people are at and to really work with them in their local communities because that's key is really understanding a very detailed level, what's going on for people, where they're, where they're at and where they live. And I think GPs are the best people to lead that.
1: And I suppose volunteers, I mean, we heard from Anne Cable earlier, as you heard from St John Ambulance. She was talking about maybe 100,000 people signing up, 25,000 people in training, 10,000 volunteers already doing it. Is that a big part of what's going right?
4: It's a huge part. It's been really exciting for me to think about these partnerships and actually what might we get from that for the future. So in my I live in St Albans and in our local vaccine centre, I took my my parents in law to be vaccinated not long ago. The vaccine um, volunteers, they were amazing. They've got car park volunteers standing out there in the freezing cold, helping people navigate, people working with uh, very frail elderly people, supporting them right through the process. It's been an amazing turnout. And I think that partnership with local communities, local government and general practice has been absolutely at, at the heart of why this has been so great. And I really hope it continues.
2: Yeah, although um, we're celebrating the successes, the one thing that that we have had pointed out to us, um, again, is the inequality in this pandemic. And it still does seem to be true in terms of the take up of the vaccine that actually um, still the majority of people who have taken it up are white. A larger proportion of people who have taken up the vaccine are white versus People from BAME communities—that that is still a real area of concern.
4: So there's a lot that could still go wrong. I think there's. It, I think we just need to know that it will take a lot of effort and energy, and that's really important that we pay attention to how we engage with those communities, not just the vaccination program. COVID as a whole has really um, laid out starkly the inequalities, health inequalities in our country, and we need to really think about that to be. Mindful of that and know that it just takes more work to reach those communities. I, I think we, we sometimes hear the term hard to reach communities. I think that's, it just means we have to work harder to do it and, and we shouldn't blame those communities for being hard to reach. There's a lot of wrong with how we've done things in the past that we really need to work hard and the best people to engage with those communities are members of those communities. So working with the faith leaders, working with the people on the ground in the voluntary groups and the community leaders who understand what's needed and understand what will get this vaccine out there. And that's going to take effort. It's going to take effort and it's going to take resource from from health services to really go and from lots of other people as well to go out and and work with those communities. But working with them is really key. There has to be done in partnership. Otherwise, it won't work.
1: So Becky I mean again one of the problems that I certainly have heard is about getting the vaccine to the right places have been uh, suggestions it's been quite patchy some uh, parts of the country getting it quicker than others some GP surgeries getting it quicker than others different methods of getting it out there and uh, not necessarily always working at the right moment because they haven't got the supplies I mean what about that side of it is that working well. I I mean
4: this is an enormous logistical challenge and I think so the GP um, phase which is the bit I know best of the vaccine program so we've got three parts of the vaccine program we've got the bit that's run in hospitals for hospital staff and inpatients and outpatients we've got the mass vaccine centers that are just guesting going and then we've got uh, the general practice delivery which has been about 75 percent I think of the the program so far it's the biggest bit of the program certainly the supply, um, GPs are able to vaccinate as quick as they get supply, but obviously that supply doesn't come smoothly. It, you know, we're waiting as our people across the world for supply. I think we, we did roll out the programme in waves in general practice, starting with wave one, which got going in December, coming on to wave six, I think, that started in January. And that was right. We needed to do it in a carefully managed process and to allow us to learn about how to make this work. And there were some areas of the country, therefore, that got going faster. There are also other, some areas of the country which just have a lot more over 80s than others. And I think that's one of the things we're really interested in is that often those areas with higher deprivation and bigger BME BME communities have a younger population. But those, that younger population is still really vulnerable. And now as we're moving down the cohorts really rapidly and the, the, the national programme of how we prioritise people, I'm hoping that, that some, some of that inequality gets... Um, get spread because we just look at age um that's always going to have a skew towards wealthier areas because that, they tend to have more older people
2: hmm, interesting what are the lessons then that we should be learning now um in order to deal with what could end up being you know regular annual semi-annual uh, covid vaccination program could be part of our lives for a while
4: to come Yeah, and I guess that would be in the same way that flu is. So we run a huge flu vaccination campaign every single year, and this year down to 50-year-olds, in fact, so an awful lot of the population eligible for a free flu jab. So I think it will be really important that we do learn what worked really well in this programme, what will work for the future, and I particularly think this understanding of how... the sort of statutory health service and the local government need to partner with communities and faith groups and all those other people to really think about the nuance of getting this vaccine out. It's it's really complex. There are loads and loads of issues to deal with um, um, and we're working in, in real time as fast as is possible. There will be things that go wrong, but actually I think um, the UK should be incredibly proud of what's happened, and I think that's partly because we have this amazing primary care system in this country.
0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Faye Fei Lee of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: Now we've been talking about what went right with the UK's vaccine effort. We've been talking about the ways in which uh, we've managed to get the vaccine into people's arms nationally. Now we're going to talk about another aspect of our special, talking about how the success came about. We've seen how the rollout managed to get over 14 million doses into arms, according to Bloomberg's vaccine tracker. But now we want to focus in on the political side. How did the UK go about making a system that managed to procure enough doses for enough providers in time? And how has the rollout been seen as a success? How has that benefited the government? Joining us, very pleased to say, is Bloomberg's UK politics reporter, Emily Ashton. Emily, first of all, um why are we talking about the UK's vaccine rollout as a success? What is it that's distinguished it?
3: Well, it's the scale of it, the speed of that rollout. I mean, as you say 14 million people vaccinated already um, since December. Um well on target to meet the 15 million most vulnerable people by the 15th of February, probably um, before that. We're already seeing um people in their 60s being vaccinated in some parts of the country and it's just well ahead of other European countries Um, and has been quite a surprise um, across the world but also to people in Britain who have been hearing horror stories about the way uh, the government's been handling coronavirus for the past year. Suddenly we have all this good news.
2: Yes it hasn't it been a year of sort of terrible extremes then how do you think that the government um, went about uh, the vaccination program what what was it um, that actually meant that this was a success unlike so many other parts of the government effort that you know left an
3: awful lot to be desired i think it was a case of acting early and putting a lot of resources in it early on so even back in the spring um, and we know that the oxford university astraZeneca vaccine was being made you know, very early on, as soon as we kind of heard about coronavirus, they were on it last year. Um, the government um, and particularly Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Valance ordered this UK Vaccines task force to be set up. And that's that was headed by um, a woman called Kate Bingham, who's a venture capitalist. A uh, lot of um, experience with pharmaceuticals, the trade um, industries uh, around the vaccine industry. And and they managed to get together a list of potential vaccines, potential manufacturers. And they managed to, well, it was a gamble, really, choosing, you know, which ones to put up high up. Um, But it's paid off. You know, three of those vaccines have been approved. AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, which is coming on stream in the spring. Um, And there's three of those, Novavax and Valneva, Janssen. You know, they could be coming um, on stream later this year. Um, So it's it's acting early and also crucially buying millions and millions of doses, far more than the UK needed, because you don't know which um, vaccine is going to be approved or
1: work and which ones are going to get supply from. No, Kate Bingham's a fascinating figure in this, uh, I think, Emily, because uh, casting one's mind back, she was heavily criticised in various ways, not least for the fact that it seemed to be a bit of cronyism going on because she's married to a leading Conservative MP and there have been a lot of criticisms about things happening within the tent rather than going outside it. But what she did, did work, maybe because she was just uh, able to, to tap into so many parts of government and the pharmaceutical industry.
3: That's right. I mean, she did come under criticism, as you say, um, for her marriage to a, a, a minister or senior conservative MP. Um, but also, then later, there was a PR row about how much her team had spent on PR, and that kind of dominated the headlines for a while. Um, and then people realised, oh, hang on, the vaccines are being rolled out here, and she's done quite a good job. Um, and as you say, those contacts in industry hugely helped. Um, I read an interview with her recently. She was talking about, well, you know, the, the week before she'd had lunch with the boss of this company and she was able to just call him up and say, right, can we order this? I mean, those contacts hugely helped. And so being able to outsource that to a team of people with experience um, and contacts in that world hugely helped the UK. Um, mm. And just acted early. And, and just so much money, like bu- buying so many doses early on, mm. far more than we actually need was the was the helping handler.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and it's sort of been used as an illustration for Britain's both kind of academic um, but also kind of business prowess in a way, isn't it? On the other hand, though... A lot of anger directed towards the government about the high death rate in Britain, mistakes for which the government has really not apologised. And so, as I say, this kind of enormous contrast between the positivity of the vaccine, everybody feeling so optimistic and hopeful, and yet people have been personally affected and doctors on the front line with these awful you know, stories and the terrible picture of what has happened to individuals.
3: Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's really interesting to, to think about how the government will be perceived or it's the way it's handled coronavirus in the years to come. Will it be remembered for the success of this vaccine rollout, millions of people being vaccinated within a few months? Or will it be remembered for the horrendous death toll and any mistakes being made early on, dithering over lockdowns and restrictions, um, PPE, the protective equipment not getting to the NHS frontline. line, um, And, you know, all these concerns about border controls and not being put in at the the right time, what will be remembered for? And that death toll is creeping up all the time um, and it will be very high um, and will continue for a few months yet.
1: I suppose one of the interesting things in this, I mean, obviously, as you say, it's a huge national tragedy what's happened and what now comes is a, is a breath of good news that, that we all welcome. But it plays out in politics almost inevitably and we know there are huge pressures on Boris Johnson coming from his own back benches to reopen quickly, to to, to, to ease up on the restrictions and a lot of people, of course, would, would want that. Is, in a way, perhaps the vaccination success a double-edged sword? Because the better it works the more pressure Johnson will feel to do uh, the opening up, surely.
3: Yeah, and, and, you know, as you say, it gives people kind of a sense of invincibility, I guess, like, right, well, I've had my vaccine and I can go out and let's just end it now. Um, I think, and obviously there are the conservative MPs who feel like that, you know, that people have been vaccinated, we need to move on now and move on with our lives and be able to let people move around. I think what people have got to remember is there are two doses for a start, so you're not... Um, completely vaccinated after one dose you you have to have your second and that could be three months apart um, and it takes a few weeks for that to kick in um, and and also you know it's not 100% success rate the vaccine however good a vaccine is it doesn't mean that everybody is suddenly immune um, completely there, will, there is an element of risk uh, the population there will be a proportion of population still susceptible but everybody's had it um, so it's all this difficult balance, isn't it, for the government? to At what point is it okay to um, let things go back to normal? And I, I think it will be very, very slow reopening over the next few months because, frankly, they don't want to plunge us into another a fourth national lockdown. It would it would look like he was completely out of control, and that's what Boris Johnson doesn't want.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, perhaps does any other issue in terms of the reopening have as much weight as reopening schools? I mean, given that what there are something like 18, 19 million workers in the UK who have children interesting that Professor Neil Ferguson who's one of the key scientific advisors to the government talking about Johnson having some bandwidth to start reopening schools in March I mean this is the kind of political crux of it isn't it the week after next we're meant to get the plan from the Prime Minister the roadmap as it were and it's I think you know schools that perhaps are going to be at the heart of this.
3: Yeah, I mean for any parent who's at home with especially young kids and I it's, it's just impossible and it's been going on for so long. Um I think what the question is with schools reopening, I've been I've been trying to reach unions this week trying to try and talk to what teachers are feeling about this. and um, which age groups will go back first? Because last year it wasn't like all schools went back at once. Um it actually took months for secondary schools to come back after the first lockdown. Um the, the year groups that came back were reception, year one and year six, and then some exam years for the old teenagers. Um, so, you know, will we see something similar? Because even all years of primary school, that's a lot of children back in the school all, all at once. Or maybe you could do it on a rotor system and you could get, you know, one year in one week and another year in the next week. But I, I think it, will, it won't be as kind of dramatic as people think. You know, it will... They'll have to take it quite slowly and see what the impact is on cases um, and hospitalisations after they reopen.
1: And and Emily, one of the the aspects of this is that the school closures issue has been perhaps one where the Labour Party has has moved and the opposition has attempted to move the debate a little But Generally, the problem with the success, like the vaccination, uh, which is widely accepted to be that, it's very hard for the opposition to be in opposition in relation to, relation to that. It's very hard to argue against the success.
3: Yeah, it it does put Labour in a, in a tricky position. And you saw that Keir Starmer got himself in a bit of a tangle over calling for um, teachers to be vaccinated um, ahead of kind of older people who are more at risk and um, actually a lot of people didn't really think that was a good idea. And um, yeah, obviously they have to really support a successful vaccine rollout but um and and just but just point out kind of mistakes that have been made and i think I, i feel like the prime minister has been learning lessons for on the speed of decisions like he's he's a lot more cautious than he was um last autumn winter even when he was talking about christmas and how it would be inhuman to not let people see each other and all that you don't really hear that those kind of words from him anymore he's very cautious and um that, that makes life a bit more tricky for the opposition leader, I
1: think. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
3: Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May seventh for the future investor.